Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department here at the Central Library. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of trustees and directors, and the staff, we welcome you to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's annual Brown Lecture Series. We are pleased to have you here this evening as our guest. I have the distinct honor of introducing a man to you who needs no introduction. Jake Oliver. A native Baltimorean, Jake Oliver is a lawyer, journalist, publisher, and businessman. Although he has many major accomplishments under his belt, what he is most known for is his dedication and commitment to the legacy of his family-owned newspaper, the Baltimore Afro-American, which he revitalized when he took over the helm of the paper in 1982. Under Oliver's leadership, the paper continues to be one of the oldest African-American newspapers still in existence, covering the news that impacts the lives of African-Americans in the community. But before I bring Mr. Oliver to the podium, I would like to just mention as a programming note that next Tuesday, July 30th at 6.30, for our Writers Live series, we will have the author Chimaneda, Ngoza Adichie here to talk about her book, Americana. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jake Oliver to the podium. Good evening. Can you hear me? Okay. I, um, I feel that I'm really privileged to have the opportunity to have a conversation with someone who, in the journals of uh, the editorial uh, industry, uh, is an extreme icon. Uh, we are um, in the midst of a treasured institution tonight. Um, and what I propose to do is to uh, read a, a little introduction that I, I created. I couldn't resist the opportunity to do so. That uh, describes a little bit about the book um, because I felt that it was important for you all to have a, a clear sense of that. Uh, in essence, a sales pitch as to why I think you need to buy it. Uh, but also uh, to lead into questions that, some of the questions that I have, uh, but also I believe that we're going to have the opportunity to open the floor so that you all can have questions as well. Shocking the conscience. A reporter's account of the civil rights movement is an excursion through the experience of black journalist Simeon Booker as he covered the events which made the news in black history during the most important parts of the civil rights movement of the latter part of the 20th century. As the Washington Bureau Chief for Ebony Jet, Mr. Booker covered just about every event that helped improve the basic rights of the black community from integration to voting rights. During the course of his first-hand involvement in these historical events, he interacted with just about all the high-level personalities we today only see in documentaries or read about in libraries. From Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard, 
of Mound Bayou, Mississippi, the man many called the father of the civil rights movement in the early 1950s, through President Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Booker shares his unique historical experiences and insight into these and many others of this country's leaders who have in some form or fashion shaped the rights which many of us probably too often take for granted today. This book opens with the drama and the uncertain fear Booker faced in his first trip into, into Mississippi as he and jet photographer David Jackson traveled to Mound Bayou, Mississippi to cover an event that exposes the reader to the violent environment Negroes faced in 1955, particularly if they were from the North or news people. From there, Booker's life reads like a roller coaster as he brings the reader from one historical civil rights event he covered for Jet, like the Emmett Till murder and trial, through the violent battles surrounding Little Rock Central High integration, the, <clears throat> the too often overlooked 1957 March on Washington, the violence of the Freedom Riders in 1961, and to the unbelievably vicious war to integrate the University of Mississippi in 1962. This book is one you will not be able to put down, not only because of the pace it sets, but be also because of the journalism Booker uses to actually put you into his shoes, to actually feel the taunts and insults of the mob in Little Rock as he covered the Little Rock Nine's entrance, or the blood-dripping pain from the beatings he witnessed in Anniston in Birmingham, Alabama, while with Freedom Riders. The lessons and realism this book conveys are indeed exhausting. But through it all, I believe the readers get a heightened appreciation of not only the rights we have today as citizens of this great country, but also why we need to assert the energy necessary to retain those rights which we've seen over the past months appear to be under constant siege, either from the courts or the political maneuvers. It is not surprising that Mr. Booker has been the recipient of many honors as a result of the many sacrifices he has made throughout his journalism life to bring the black community the news and insight it so terribly needed during the really tough times. It appears that every major black organization based in Washington has honored this gentleman, from the Congressional Black Caucus to the National Association of Black Journalists. We owe Mr. Booker an enormous debt of gratitude, along with his journalist wife, Carol McCabe Booker, for sharing, indeed donating, the, amount of, the enormous amount of time and effort it must have taken to help us gain a depth of understanding of our history that only someone who actually lived through the experience as he did, can convey. This book is a must for any American family who believes, <laughs> any American family, let's see. Any American family who believes in the values of this country's diverse history and the necessity of being appreciated by future generations. Mr. Booker's book, as I'd indicated, starts out with his trip to Mississippi to attend a rally that was being held by a gentleman named Dr. Howard. Uh, Dr. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard in Mountain Bayou, Mississippi, as I indicated, is recognized as the father of the, of the civil rights movement. 
Uh, my first question to Mr. Booker is, could you just tell me a little bit about the personality of this man who appears in your book to be bigger than life? Uh, he apparently had a very big personality, and I understand that he uh, was almost, if not as good, if not better, uh, speaker than Reverend Dr. King. Is that true? I didn't hear it. Dr. Howard. Dr. Howard. Dr. Howard, what kind of a man? Great, great, great. And I say that because he was born and reared in the South, in Mississippi. And because in those days, when a man's skin wasn't white and he was from Mississippi, he wasn't anybody. But Dr. Howard believed he was somebody and he was not afraid, fearless. And what he did for Mississippi, I don't think he ever got the credit. He was finally, in his closing years, had to leave the South because they had threatened his life. Yeah, I understand that um, it didn't hurt to be rich either. <laughs> Dr. Howard uh, not only was a surgeon, uh, but he was a real estate developer. He was a farmer. Uh, he had quite a business going. Uh, in the book, they described it pretty much. Uh, you can't help but admire the gentleman because he had a, a very broad scope of vision that not only focused on his pocket, but also focused on the people who were around him. Uh, it quite clearly appears that this man's role in Mount Bayou, Mississippi, was to help liberate those who were far less fortunate. That meeting that um, uh, Simeon Booker attended, that he opens up his book with, uh, had approximately 13,000 people attending. This apparently was the third meeting uh, of uh, that of in Mount Bayou that uh, Dr. Howard had, had coordinated. It was the Negro Citizens League, or I believe is the name of the group. But uh, that meeting had a series of speakers besides Dr. Howard. Uh, had Congressman Diggs from Detroit, uh, and they had a, a, a reverend or pe preacher named Reverend George Washington Lee from Belzoni, Mississippi. Remember his name. He is the first fatal uh, victim in the civil rights movement that was started with this particular meeting. Uh, after the meeting, uh, attending the meeting also included some notaries such as um, Amzie Moore, who was a, a leader down in, in, in Mississippi, Gus Quartz, and a, and a young gentleman named Medgar Evers. Uh, after the meeting, uh, Mr. Booker I had the opportunity to interview these people, these gentlemen. And I was wondering, what was your impression of Medgar Evers uh, at that point? Medgar Evers was a very young, ambitious person. I was very pleased to see Mississippi develop such a young man and with such ideas and ambition. And 
the saddest thing happened. Suddenly, he was killed. Mm -hmm. And that was a real heartbreaking event. I just really began to realize where I was and what I was up against. His death was really a shocker, much like Reverend Lee, mm -hmm. who was killed a day after I interviewed him. But those were days that hard to imagine. I was a northerner, thank goodness. And <laughs> my trip to Mississippi, first trip for the rally you were talking about, mm -hmm. I just couldn't believe the story I heard about how we lived and what was the future. I just couldn't, it was just overwhelming. At that rally, after the rally, as you just stated, um, uh, the Reverend Lee was, was killed. What happened, as it's described in the book, uh, several of the uh, thugs in that area, a couple days later, uh, sort of pinned him in while he was driving home from a, apparently uh, a meeting on a dark road in Mississippi uh, and blew out the back tires and then they came around and put a shotgun into the side window. Um, one of the aspects of, of, of this part of the, uh, this introduction was that you really do get a sense of not only the violence that is rendered to uh, the good folks in Mississippi, but also how it is covered up and how unabashed these people are in connection with uh, what they do uh, to those who are far less fortunate. Um, there's always a sheriff, um, and you can imagine what he looks like, you know. Um, but this sheriff, Shelton, remember Sheriff Shelton? Uh, he came up with an explanation as to what happened because, of course, they did not recognize that uh, Reverend Lee, or Reverend George Washington Lee, had been murdered. Um, but they had to explain what, why are the pellets in his head? Do you remember what the explanation was? No. Dental fillings. Dental fillings. <laughs> that is an introduction to what you are more or less exposed to so many times when this book takes you through the various events in the South. Uh, that it becomes, after a point, it, you know, you've got to walk out the back door and scream once or twice um, because it, they, have, uh, they have no reservations of expecting you to believe it when, in fact, they know that you don't. Shortly after, that, that event occurred in May 1954. Um, about two, maybe three months later, the, the next, the first big event, occurred. 
Uh, we started to get an introduction with Reverend Lee's assassination, but it was on August the 24th, 1955, that uh, I think many of us in this room probably remember uh, as uh, the day that we really, at least I really began to become aware of what this thing called civil rights was. That was the day that Emmett Till was murdered. Um, obviously, you probably know the story. Uh, uh, he was a visitor uh, from Chicago, uh, and he was uh, down visiting his grandfather and cousins uh, in Money, Mississippi. Money, Mississippi. And um, he and his cousins, Simeon Wright and Wheeler Parker, uh, decided to go to the local grocery store that was on Brian's Grocery and Meat Market in Money, Mississippi. And um, uh, they got involved in watching a checker or a, uh, a game that was going on outside, and um, someone said that there was a, an interesting-looking lady inside, and Emmett walked in to uh, buy uh, something, some candy, uh, and she accused him of whistling at her uh, and accosting her. Um, and late that night, uh, the owner of the store, Roy Bryant, and his friend, or uh, could be his relative, Malam, uh, was his last name, uh, they showed up at Emmett Till's house, grandfather's house, and pulled him out of bed. Uh, and um, that was the last time that his family saw him. Um, Everyone in Mississippi knew who had done it. But once again, in the book, you are more or less shown or drama. The book dramatizes how they really spent a lot of time covering up the facts. First of all, when they eventually found the body, um, it was so terribly mutilated. Uh, and around the neck was uh, a cotton gin, which was held, used to hold the body down uh, under the water, uh, and um, so that it was effectively hidden for quite some time. Um, uh, and that wire was, um, was barbed wire, so it had all kinds of stuff. Uh, and the only way that they were able to find the body is that the fact that the, the, the legs really were not held down adequately enough, so the legs floated up, and lo and behold, some folks found it. All this is explained in the book. And... Um, when they basically uh, got to the point of accusing Roy Bryant and J.W. Malam of con committing this murder, um, of course, they said, well, you know, we didn't do it. Um, but also they tried to more or less insinuate that that's not him. And the only way that they were able to really effectively identify him was uh, a ring on his finger that his stepfather had given him as he took him to the train station to go to Mississippi to visit his grandfather. The, um, the trial in the book is very dramatic. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Booker goes through a, a substantial amount of time explaining um, <laughs> the process of the black press how they were relegated to a, a, a table, maybe one half the size to a corner, 
Um, and they were very effectively restricted from actually covering it. Um, one of the interesting parts of the trial was that there was a rumor that there may have been some witnesses to the murder. And um, that developed into an interesting little uh, couple chapters because uh, everyone was looking for the witnesses, and the witnesses were alleged to have been um, two black men who were supposed to have been in the truck when J.W. and Roy showed up to pull Emmett Till out of his house. Um, two or three black men, it was really never, ever certain. Um, but obviously and conveniently, they couldn't be found. Um, they apparently also came across a, uh, a young black guy named Willie Reed, Willis Reed, and his aunt, Amanda Bradley, who indicated that they had seen a truck drive by with um, Emmett Till in the back and three white men and two black men. And then they heard, they saw the truck go into uh, J.W. Malam's uh, garage and they heard the screams. In the book it's described, uh, the screams, the last screams of Emmett Till. Um, God knows what they did to him. Uh, but they did about it, just about everything you can imagine. Um, but the Willis Reed and Aunt Amanda Bradley were only two of the witnesses. The main witnesses were who were the blacks who were in the truck with them. And um, there was uh, a lot of uh, confusion about uh, at least two of them. One was named Too Tight Collins conveniently, and the other one was named Henry Lee Loggins. And um, apparently in the book, uh, Mr. Booker uh, joined up with some of the police force as well as some other journalists to go try to find out where these additional witnesses may have been hidden. Uh, at first they were claimed to have been in jail, but of course the sheriff said they weren't. And then the second is that they were probably being hidden in some plantation uh, in the area. Uh, the point is that we don't know whether or not they were ever found. Do you know whether or not Too Tight Collins and the other guy was ever found? It's been such a long time. I'm glad you mentioned Too Tight Collins. <laughs> Too tight was... You're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I know too... I mean, you can't, you can't forget that name, Too Tight. But, but the Afro had its writer down there, too. And they had a couple writers. One was Jimmy Hicks. Remember Jimmy Hicks? Yeah. And Moses Newsom, who's in the back of the room. Yeah, he's here. And um, they were also covering the trial. Uh, and I Jimmy would, Hicks... I would, I would invite Moses Newton to come up. Moses, why don't you come up and join us? <laughs> There's a stall. <laughs> 
Moses, why don't you share with us some of your thoughts on the trial? And, and we'll get back to Too Tight, but because uh, Too Tight is a, a story unto himself. Well, the trial itself was uh, sort of a farce. Um, I think everybody was pretty much assured that uh, Milam and Brian had killed the young man. Um, it was sort of sticky around there, you know, you, you get to a place like that and uh, the first thing the sheriff tells you is that uh, we're not going to integrate the table for reporters down here. <laughs> and, and he greets you at the door and tells you that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was a pretty rough trial. Uh, a lot of things that were said by the woman, uh, the judge didn't let the jury hear it because it would have probably caused some problems down there. But uh, I don't know, I, this is Mr. Booker's night here, and uh, <laughs> I tell you, it, it was uh, quite interesting that bow tie you see him wearing there. Uh, you know, we. <laughs> We're hanging out around places like Little Rock and uh, down in Mississippi on this situation and uh, Freedom Rides. We were out there for a couple of weeks. Um, I was on the bus that burned up in Anniston, Alabama. He was on the trailsway that day and a lot of people got beat up on that bus. Uh, that was one of the crazy things about covering those stories because uh, you never knew what the police were going to do. Hmm. Uh, in Anniston, when the bus would burn, um, we had a policeman there who pulled his pistol and stood in the doorway to keep them from actually getting to us. <coughs> On his bus, the police sort of disappeared uh, for about 15 minutes so that uh, the mob could beat up people. So. Um, I, I don't know. i just say one thing about uh, Simon Booker here. I, I sort of, at first, thought he was sort of a professor guy walking around acting like a <laughs> journalist uh, with his bow tie and everything. But I soon found out he was one of the sharpest guys, one of the toughest guys, one of the bravest guys out there. And when you worked on the civil rights beat out there, uh, there were times when you knew that you would have been better off someplace else. Mm -hmm. But uh, Simmons was one of those sturdy guys. And uh, the guy you enjoyed working with because uh, you figured he was not going to say something or do something. He was going to get you in worse shape than you already were in. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone I always admired. And uh, one of the good things about it, you know, they always threw this big Christmas party down at Jet at Christmas Jet time. Headquarters. And, uh, <laughs> everybody was there, all the politicians and good people, bad people. And uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it's the kind of book that uh, you're going to really enjoy. Uh, I think I got one in March when it was first available. 
and uh, he just covered a lot of inside yeah. stuff that you don't know about. Stuff that happened in Washington, D.C., and uh, talked about the contacts that he had. There was a guy who could pick up the telephone and talk to Attorney General Kennedy. Uh, and he did that when we were in trouble down in Alabama. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is uh, one of the most interesting books on the civil rights movement that you're going to bump into. And uh, it's a great guy. And if you read the book, you'll find out that the feeling is mutual. Yeah. Simeon's admiration for Moses. Moses Newsom. first starts, he appears in the book at um, Reverend Lee's funeral uh, in Mount Bayou. Uh, and uh, Moses pops up at the, at the trial of, uh, at the murder trial, at the murder of Emmett Till. And then he pops up again at uh, Little Rock. Uh, Little Rock was kind of violent, particularly for Moses, uh, primarily because of the fact that if you ever see uh, the video of, of the, the entrance of Little Rock Nine, um, there are generally two black reporters who are grabbed by the mob. Moses is one of them, and he gets beaten up pretty bad. Um, but uh, in the book, you really get a sense of Daisy Bates, the personality and you can understand easily uh, why they persevered when they had a leader like her. Um, uh, the book goes, as I indicated, it, it goes fast from one event to another. Um, uh, after Little Rock, things really got very, very interesting. Um, and uh, I just, uh, Ole Miss was the part that really stuck me because um, I'd forgotten how violent and vicious the things were uh, at that point. Uh, but that was literally a war uh, where you had thousands of troops who were battling the folks in Oxford, but you got a clear sense of how bad they did not want to integrate. These folks were everywhere throwing rocks, bottles, and trying to kill people. And I think there was three or four who did get killed, too. And, um, but it, it, the South was, was it, it's hard to believe it was that ugly back then. Um, as, a, as a kid growing up, uh, we were more or less every day, there was always some news on the front page, Mike, about you know, an additional step of the war. There is another section of the book, which you know, besides the events of uh, the battles in the South, uh, Simeon gives you a, a sense of the personalities of the country's leaders, starting with Eisenhower. You get a sense of what was his support in connection with the needs of those civil rights workers, or those folks who were trying to integrate Little Rock, et cetera, and to what extent did he resist. You get a clear picture of the um, folks at the FBI who really weren't our friends. Um, uh, there was a, a segment of the book where Mr. Booker has a private meeting with Dwight Eisenhower after his presidency. Uh, and he is able to try and, and dig a little bit deeper into Eisenhower's hesitation to provide support to black folks obtaining their civil rights. 
Um, and the thing that the book reiterates time and time again is that Ike did not believe that if you are going to get the freedom that you're, that you're trying to get from civil rights, laws will not do it. You've got to rely on the hearts of the people. But the violence that we were being subjected to in the South didn't reflect that, that their hearts were going to change any time within our lifetime which is why Mr. Booker, time and time again, raises Ike's hesitation. He was a nice man. But when it came to Negroes, it was quite clear he didn't want them sitting next to him or marrying his daughter or whatever. You know, I mean, it was, Ike was quite different. One of the more complex characters in the book, uh, at least I found, was LBJ. Um, by the time you get LBJ into the presidency, you've experienced him in a couple segments. First of all, uh, there was the Civil Rights Act of 1957. It was passed, but it was watered down so much that it created a certain amount of diversity within the ranks of the leadership, of the black leadership. Roy Wilkins wasn't sure whether or not he could support it because it had no teeth. Um, a. Philip Randolph said that if, in fact, you... Uh, have to do except this, you might as well, you'll be better off with nothing. And then there was Adam Clayton Powell, who thought it was the best thing since apple pie. And that's another character that Mr. Booker develops throughout the book. You get a clear sense of where Adam Clayton Powell's role is in all this stuff. He sort of dances through and dances around and, you know, and then he disappears. But um, it is with LBJ that you really get a sense because it was LBJ who sort of took all the possible teeth out of the Civil Rights Act of 57 as the leader of the Southern Bloc. And when he became president, what hope did we have um, as we knew that there were still some major battles that we had to confront? Um, and um, he was, well... What was your impression of LBJ? I'll let you do Well, <clears throat> that's a very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget the time that LBJ ordered my publisher mm -hmm. to come to his office in Washington, John H. Johnson was a very difficult man. He was uh, had a, done very well in journalism, and it seemed very hard that LBJ suddenly would issue an order. We said, "What?" It's happening. Well, it boiled down to one thing. He was very disgruntled about something I'd written about him. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> now, my job is on the line. Well, my publisher stood up and told him, he would check. He wasn't going to say anything. 
and he didn't. But I always could see LBJ as a man who didn't face up to issues. And so I quit going to the White House, and for the rest of his term, I avoided him. That was the most difficult period of my uh, career as a White House correspondent, to be accredited, but not to show up. Like many in politics, LBJ said one thing and did another. And if you criticized him for it, he became very belligerent. And a lot of people were afraid to criticize him. I wasn't. And I took my lumps. <laughs> but I remember it's been a retraction. That's right. Johnson never had to print any retractions of Mr. Booker's articles, uh, ever. So he stuck by it. But that meeting that he talked about uh, that, that Johnson had with LBJ was interesting because, of course, they were businessmen. So uh, LBJ apparently wanted to have some assurance that, you know, you be careful if you're going to be criticizing me. And he said, well, you know, we'll be careful, but, you know, we're going to print what the truth is. Johnson went to something else also. So they both had, they left that meeting apparently with mutual assurances. We'll be careful what we write. And Johnson left with Ford. And uh, what LBJ did was he called up Ford and said, look, they want some advertising. What well, can you was, do? I'm sorry, it was Kennedy. That was, was that the, Kennedy? That was the way Kennedy handled it. Kennedy didn't like something Simeon wrote too. But he invited John H. Johnson to dinner with uh -huh. his wife in Georgetown. He was a senator then. Right. Very nice. And then after dinner, he said, you know, we, I, I don't want to be criticized for not having a black secretary in Washington because Nixon doesn't have a black secretary anywhere. <laughs> so John H. Johnson assured him he'd be treated fairly. And then he said, what can I do for you? Would you uh -huh. like an ambassadorship when I become president? And, he said, you know, we, we need advertising. So then Ford called. He uh, called Ford and then Ford Johnson called and, Johnson. Yeah, right. but that Simeon points out the difference in approach of the two men, one being a bully and the other one being a negotiator. And <laughs> John H. Johnson promised both of them the same thing. You'll be treated fairly. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And he never told Simeon to pull punches or anything like that. In the book... LBJ, however, is viewed as a hero when it comes to the civil rights, because it is a, the Civil Rights Act of 64 uh, that he fought where Kennedy really didn't have the political power or leverage to do it. And then following what was happening with the voter registration and the march in Montgomery and the brutalities that were being exhibited on TV uh, at, at when they were attempting to vote in the murders that were happening at that point, um, he was able to push the Voter Rights Act through in three or four months later. Um, 
And so when you measure the civil rights accomplishments of, of, of LBJ, it appears in the book that he stands head and shoulders over all the others because once he, with all his complexities, he sort of got the message that these people needed help and he provided the help, not only with respect to getting the legislation through, but the march from Montgomery, after they got beaten up a couple times, he was the one who called up all the troops and they were guarded straight on through from uh, until, until they got to Montgomery. So um, uh, it's interesting, you know, that you have so many different, you know, but there is a reference in the book only one time to, to Ronald Reagan. <laughs> what, what, what's, uh, what were your thoughts on that? You have a lot to say about Nixon, but Reagan is sort of a mystery. I don't remember. <laughs> he did destroy some of the Civil Rights Commission actions. Well, that's the point, yeah. Reagan did so much to try to turn back civil rights and mm -hmm. affirmative action, mainly with his appointments. And as Simeon points out in the book, he did try to really... Um, destroy the U.S. Commission on Civil, Civil Rights, rights. Mm -hmm. which had done so much to expose voting rights, the irregularities, and, and other civil rights problems. And he appointed people like Clarence Pendleton, who's described in the book, who came from Washington and was a friend of Simeon's as he was growing up. Mm -hmm. But he, he sold out to Ed Meese and, and the Reagan administration and mm -hmm. uh, and made such bizarre comments that even conservatives started worrying about him. <laughs> One of those was that uh, equal pay for equal work was the craziest thing to come along since Looney Tunes. And they said, let's back away from Clarence. So that, <laughs> that's, you know, Simeon could have gone on with all the presidents up until President uh, H, George H.W. Bush, mm -hmm. but uh, he wanted to keep the book manageable. It's interesting that you point out also that the difficulties, particularly in the Republican administration, that when they were eventually getting to the position, point of appointing African Americans to positions, once they did, uh, the difficulties that those people were placed in uh, trying to carry out their jobs. Uh, I, I think one of the, the first ones was Fred Merrill, uh, who was a very smart man, uh, and he was very well respected, but he just couldn't get anything done at all. Um, and he wrote a book after he left that uh, is referred to in this book that is quite scathing of Eisenhower administration. Um, but then you have Nixon, and in the book, the first person he appoints is Robert J. Brown, Bob Brown. And Bob Brown is probably one of the most amazing characters in the book because he didn't let the republicanism stop him getting positive things through to help the black community. I'd like to hear your thoughts on Bob Brown. What do you think of him? What did I think of? Bob Brown. He did a good job for what the circumstances were. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember that administration well because I was close to uh, Nixon but not on important issues. He uh, 
hired a few blacks, and he thought that was it. We uh, agreed on some things and others we didn't. But uh, I gave him credit for at least being open. Mm-hmm. Nixon. Yeah. Well, it seems like in your book you say that Bob Brown had a, an agenda, that he, he wanted to get jobs for black contractors uh, in the federal government, so he started well, to monitor. Black contracts. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He had, and he did. He, he was very popular with the black business mm -hmm. side, which was very small, but he got a lot of money for it, Yeah. which was new and opened up a new area. For black contractors uh, yeah, doing business. That's right. But he also did some work with the, in the book. He talk, referred to him doing a lot of good for HBCUs by the work study grants that were being offered that they couldn't afford to because it had to be matched. Mm -hmm. So he eliminated the matching requirements for HBCUs as a result of the fact that their student body was made up of more than 50% of low-income students who really couldn't. Uh, and the third thing that he did was he, he tried to address the military racism, which was awful. Uh, he went down with um, Judge Bennett mm -hmm. down to Biloxi um, because there had been complaints by the black soldiers that uh, none, of the, none of the businesses would allow them to come in and buy or eat. But this was way after the Civil Rights Act. So, I mean, it was against the law. Um, and so the general said, we don't have that problem. Uh, so when Bob Brown and Judge Bennett went down, they said, okay, and they went out. They went to the first restaurant they saw. They sat down and said, we'd like to have this and that. And they said, we don't serve you. <laughs> so they went right back to the general and gave him an ultimatum. And the next day, integration hit Biloxi, Mississippi. <laughs> So, uh, but there are all kinds of instances like this where you see various levels. Some of them are violent. Some of them are political maneuvering. Others are just straight up in your face. You either do it or you don't. Uh, but they involve all kinds of people. But this gentleman, he knew them all. He was involved with them all, which is why he's an institution to be treasured. Uh, we could go on all night doing this, but the point is, is that I would like to hear if you are. I'm sure you have to have questions because this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience being just near him. So I'm opening it up to questions from you all. I have a question. I don't know if this is in your book or not, but did you cover the story of these death of the three young civil rights workers chaining? He did. It is. I don't know. What did you find? He wants to know, did you cover Schwerner, Cheney, the, the and Goodman. murder of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman during Freedom Summer? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think Simeon was down there investigating. Uh -huh. I, I think Jet covered it, but I, we don't have no, too much wasn't. in the book because that was not one of the specific things that he really explored in depth. Still, Larry still covered Larry still, yeah. It was, it's referred to in the book as um, right after the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 64. 
um, these three disappeared. And its purpose in a book is to uh, more or less reflect some of the leverage that LBJ was exerting on J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, who didn't want to do anything that involved black folks or civil rights workers. Uh, but he told him, you better do something, and you got to do it uh, like you are, are basically trying to track communists. Well, uh, consider the KKK, the new top communists, and you better get your particular troops down there to find out where these folks are. There's a movie about how the FBI uh, sent a whole bunch of folks down there. I don't think they did much, uh, but the fact of the matter is at least they were responding to LBJ's threats. Questions? Mike. Um, I think it's important, um, JT, I'll take privilege, because we're sitting with uh, two freedom fighters, uh, two gentlemen who gave their all. Um, I know because my parents told us mm -hmm. and uh, interpreted for us what was happening and the galvanizing thing with Emmett Till. But you've got to understand it's in their roots. There was a Reverend Waring. Would you talk about your grandfather <laughs> being the, pres the principal of the Colored High and Training School, two of whose students were Lily Mae Carroll and Carl Murphy, publisher of the Afro-American newspaper. And this man has Baltimore roots. And if you would mention that, and that we know you were born here and went to Ohio, but the, your Baltimore experience. I wish I had a book. <laughs> <laughs> I came back to Baltimore after I graduated from Virginia Union University in Richmond. As soon as I saw my name on the list, I didn't wait for the ceremony. <laughs> I got on a bus and packed my little clothes came to Baltimore and started my journalism career. But unknowing to me, there's a lot of difference in levels of journalism. And when I went to, came back to Baltimore, they gave me assignments of ABC Journal Cub Report and that kind of material. I was thinking big, and they were wanting me to go to them. <laughs> so I didn't stay there for long. <laughs> Two years. I went to Cleveland, and the publisher, W.O. Walker, was very good, but he was a Republican and a Democratic side. So any time elections would come, he was very political. Outside of that, he wasn't. So finally, I worked up to win a Neiman, and when I finished a Neiman, I said, I'm going to Washington Post. And I wrote 50-some answers of daily papers. None of them answered. None of them interested. Hired a black. So... I appealed to Philip Graham at the post, and he said, 
come into town, get a job, and our first opportunity I'd hire we will. But nothing happened. So I said, well, the only thing I can do to help is to join up with John Johnson and do something of what you knew from top to bottom and make a new slate, which I did. And it was a very adventurous career. And we started a lot of things. I first was assigned to cover when uh, <coughs> What's the Till guy? When Emmett Till was killed, mm-hmm. his body came, was in Chicago, and that was the opening. I went into Mississippi to cover the funeral, and that opened my eyes. The conditions in the South terrible. And I spent a whole lifetime trying to improve race relations. And it was a very difficult, sometimes fearless experience. I remember my father once telling me I've forgotten that already. But I remember him saying to me, uh, He always wanted you to use Junior. He pointed me, he said, you use Junior on your name, so anything you write or say won't be attributed to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm Simon Booker Junior. I've carried that my whole life. What else? It's good. It's good. And I just want to say this is my wife, who is a co-author of this book. She doesn't take any credit for it, but she's a writer, very charming lady. <laughs> I, I turned back over to the chair. Um, first of all, Charlie Robinson. Uh, First of all, I want to wish you a happy birthday, because I know your birthday's coming up, right? When's your birthday? birthday. Simeon. When's your birthday? When's your birthday? I can't say. August 27th. Happy birthday. 27th. <laughs> That's an interesting day. You got a, you got a present to go in there? <laughs> My question will be my present to you. <laughs> oh, I hope it's big. <laughs> And maybe two of you can talk about your fear in covering the subject matter and how you got over your fear while covering this this movement, if you will, that seemed to be sweeping the nation while you were in the middle of it, if you will. Can you talk about your fears? Well, there was a lot of fear in those days of covering in the South, I would have to 
go leave Chicago and we would fly into Memphis, Tennessee, run on an old car, not a new one, put on old clothes, and I would always have a Bible in my hand when we left Memphis to go into the South. I remember a man coming up to me once. I was standing on corner in Jackson, Mississippi, and he said, Nigga, you don't belong down here. I said, hmm, yes, sir, I'm a speech language, everything. He looked at me hard. He said, but they don't wear glasses like that. <laughs> I said, oh, hell. I've had many sharp exchanges and quick exits. <laughs> I never waited to see what the answer was. I'm gone. <laughs> gone. <laughs> but you never give up. You always say, you represent a newspaper, a magazine, and you got to be careful. I wouldn't let them put my name on any story I wrote. And I also was very careful to be quiet. When I go into town, I never tell anybody. Just a man from Jet, that's all they knew. They didn't have any way. They got alert. The White Citizens Council, yeah, it <laughs> And it was a very difficult trial. I just sometimes would get no sleep worried about whether my day was coming. Mm -hmm. huh. It hadn't come yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know, um, you decide things are changing, uh, people are out there trying to change things, and a lot of them were kids, and uh, I just felt that black representation, black coverage of this kind of history was necessary. and. Somebody had to do it, and uh, I was willing to do it. But uh, I, I'll tell you, um, I just think the heroes were those young people and those older people who would get out there and uh, take those lickings. Uh, I only got beat up a couple of times, you know, Little Rock, some someplace, but. Uh, you, um, there, there just wasn't the kind of fear that make you decide that uh, you didn't want to go back out there and cover the story. Um, Booker spoke about the kids down in Little Rock. Uh, we hang around Daisy Bates' house uh, 
a couple of weeks around. Now, you got to know all these kids. And uh, I just want to do this quickly. There's a young lady who went up there one day after the National Guard was called out. Her name was Elizabeth Eckford. And she was caught up there by herself. Mm -hmm. National Guard wouldn't let her get through. And finally she realized that none of the other kids was there. Uh, it was just her. And uh, they grouped around her, called her all kind of names, insulted her in every kind of way. And uh, I wasn't up there that day because uh, the kids weren't supposed to be there. And this one young lady didn't get the word. But as uh, soon as I heard about it, I rushed out to talk to her. And uh, she starts talking about how her knees was shaking and she didn't know if she would make it. And uh, she says that uh, I just didn't know people could be so cruel. And uh, those were the kind of things that made you stay out there. Uh, this was a 15-year-old kid, and she looks at me and she says, as soon as Mrs. Bates said we can go back, I'm going back. So uh, that's the kind of thing that kept you out there uh, doing it. You know, there was one part of the, uh, of the Emmett Till trial where the sheriff, uh, Strider, came back uh, because he'd gotten a copy of Jet Magazine, he read the article uh, uh, that, um, an article that uh, Simeon had written, and it was a very negative article about him. So he came back and says, who is this N-word that wrote this? Where is, where is this guy, Simeon Booker? Because I'm going to do something to him. And this is in a book. And everybody got quiet. And Jimmy Hicks said, well, he, he left. He went back up to Chicago. Simeon was sitting right next to him. <laughs> and the book says, look, he didn't know what he would do if this guy had found out because he didn't know what the guy was going to do to him. But this was this big strapping sheriff who was absolutely mad about what something that Simeon had written. You know, but that, that was part of the, the dangers you had to go through. More questions? I'll take one more question before It's this man in the blue one's the question I'll get you Did you have any encounters with Malcolm X? And what was your impression of him? Perhaps his effect on the movement? Yeah, what is your impression? Did you have any encounters with Malcolm X? And what was your impression of him and the movement? Well, everybody got quiet. <laughs> I knew him very well. I covered him. But uh, he just seemed to me to be much more noise than action. I think there were a lot of things that militants can do that turn a lot of blacks on and don't 
interfere with whites. But I was a friend of uh, Malcolm X, and I just uh, had a whole lot of friends, ranging all from one to the other. Thank you. Okay. I, I would, the gentleman up here was, you. Mm -hmm. What this gentleman works with young men, some of whom have given up hope about life, and he says, what can he tell them that they might learn from your experience that might give them some hope? And and Moses too. I'm deaf, that's why I have it in my ear. If I don't have it right, I don't hear. That's why I have to depend on other people. Now for your question. I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another problem. What can you tell young men today who've given up? Who've given up? Well, I tell them, don't give up. Believe in yourself because you can do it. I started out with all kind of setbacks, but none of them would made me forget what I wanted to do. And I followed it. And I spend a lot of time with young people telling them what you can do. I can organize. I can vote. I can give hope to a lot of other people and change the mood of a whole community by what you believe in. And you never give up. Moses. <laughs> Moses is going to answer also. Um, I'm not sure what I can, what I can tell them. Um, I guess the first thing I would say to them is that things have been worse than what they are now. And uh, one of the most disappointing things to me is that uh, they don't seem to try hard enough. You look at dropout rates in some of the cities. Uh, things have opened up and too many of them are not taking advantage of the opportunities. And uh, I, I said to young people that uh, 
two of the things you need most is a good education and a good reputation. And um, I think they should just pull up their trousers and uh, <laughs> get with it. Things are, things are tough. You know, I don't try to gloss over that. You know, I see it in the school systems. I see it at police interactions. I see it everywhere. But uh, as I said, things have been worse. And uh, the only way you overcome is to tackle it and try to improve the situation and not just give up. In the book, he refers to it as there being this type of environment where they want to give up as. Simeon had a conversation with, with Dr. King, and they had a discussion about the concerns about the violence that the black community was beginning to have as a result of the riots. And Dr. King basically, in essence, in the book, Simeon writes that, you know, you have to believe and that when you get into the dark chamber of pessimism, which is what Dr. King described that environment, you've got to be even stronger in your belief that you can make it through. And that is probably one of the biggest lessons that this book can teach you because when you read the violence that, they, that these folks were subjected to and what they had to endure, and they did not stop. So they did not stop. One more question, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I never joined on to any particular religion because I felt like being the answer. I did read about Muhammad Gandhi saying instead of being part of the problem, being part of the solution. Yeah. I noticed that the people on the border there, who the guy giving the signs, are of different races. I studied uh, the theosophical levels and the Russian Christian and other religions. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, what I notice is that I've been locked up for 37 years. You know, after I came back to one martial arts, I came back to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about it is, um, Baltimore is the South, deep South. Mm-hmm. Uh, even white people up in California told me, don't go back there. <laughs> I said, why well, not? This is uh, a white people prejudice back there. You know. And I thought about how people would understand that when I came back because California was totally unified. Um, the thing about it is, I've been being locked up for 37 years, although I might be released by January 30th. <laughs> I don't just think positive, I'm like completion of positive. The most Christians told me to write a new vision. I had already did that. But the thing was to uh, uh, my expression of the music that goes through the mind, the natural thing that goes through it, of wisdom of the God. Or well, the wisdom of the God is something referred to. The unity that you express, I see. And uh, I know that the unity of every black and brown, dear girl, and white man must be totally unified. For we can even look a woman to their eyes because they're goddesses. 
please. You know, so if we can't unify ourselves, we are not capable of being in the presence of a woman. Or being accepted to hold on to a small portion of God's perfect wisdom. You know, so I want to thank each and every one of you. But thank you from the first heart. We are growing together. Eternally. Thank you. Ask. Of all the articles you've written, all the people that you've interviewed, is there one person who sticks out in your mind? President Obama. Okay. All the time yeah, he's I was I used to say a black can be elected president. A featured presidential issue. I did everything to encourage voter registration. I played up black politicians, all to keep it one idea a black someday can be president. And when he finally was elected, after I had retired, I said, there's a God. <laughs> He was very modest about his Baltimore roots. The first black lawyer was recruited was a wearer, a cousin who came to Baltimore and the first black elected to the city council. And then also he he was involved. And he was the first black reporter for the Washington Post before it so-called became liberal. And that showed his incredible journalistic skills. And we're not capturing, he's always been so modest, but their wedding reception was held at our home at a Wonder on the Bay in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, and that's how much respect my parents had for this young couple and Simeon's work in Mississippi, Moses will tell you, they escape with their lives, sometimes without driving that old car back to the rental place. And so I suggest we give a round of applause to these gentlemen who made it possible for people to